What's going on, everybody? Isaac here with Civil Engineering Academy. Excited to jump on this uh, Civil Engineering Academy podcast episode with you. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I bring on a general today. He's been a fantastic leader of our country, fantastic executive, uh, just tons of leadership experience. And I just can't thank him enough for coming on to our little show here. Felt like a little fish in a very big pond. But I bring on retired Lieutenant General Thomas Bostick. And he's been an executive. He's been working in biotech companies. He's been the 53rd uh, Chief Engineer over the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is the largest organization of civil engineers in the world. Um, he's also worked on massive projects when catastrophes have hit, including Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy. He's also a combat veteran. He's uh, also you know, a teacher and a, and a mentor to many other people out there in the world. Uh, going to uh, West Point and uh, teaching there, all kinds of engineering topics. So anyway, fantastic leader. I'm excited to share this with you. Like I said, it felt like a, a small fish in a very big pond here, but excited to share this one with you. He wrote a book here, and I think uh, that he mentions called Winning After Losing, and I think you're going to want to check it out. So we'll leave links in our resources to make sure you can. Uh, definitely get uh, your hands on that book and read about his life experiences. And, you know, a lot of this can be applied to you. Uh, with his experiences that he shares in his book, as well as on this podcast, because all of us want to win after losing. And it's really how to learn how to be resilient, how to take a blow and really recover from that. And that can apply to your exams, your career or anything in life. So anyway, I just really enjoyed this interview with him. I think you will too. And it's all coming right up. All right. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Academy podcast. Um, excited to have you on, Tom. Well, it was great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, man, I was just blown away. Uh, you have a, a ton of achievements in your life and um, the audience that we serve as civil engineers. And I think I thought it was going to be really exciting to have you on, which is uh, I'm glad well, we could have you on the show. So really appreciate you jumping on with me. Well, it's certainly an honor. Thank you, Isaac. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to just dive in a little bit more into your background, if you could. Um, maybe why why did you end up uh, going into the military? It seems like maybe you had quite a few options. I don't know, uh, you know, how you ended up there. And, and I guess a bigger picture is maybe is that a good option for other engineers that are heading down this path? Well, I, I think it's a great option for many people. It's not it's not an option for everybody. You know, I was the head recruiter for the Army, and, and I realized that, you know, the Army is a fit for some, and, and it's not a fit for others. I like to say we enlist a soldier, we commission an officer, but we retain families. I moved 27 times in 38 years in the military. That takes a resilient spouse and and family members to be able to do that. And my father was in the military and he was in for 26 and a half years. And I thought that was a long time until I spent 38 years in the military. <laughs> and um, I actually did not want to come in the military, and, but we had five children in the family. My father was enlisted and the first member of our family to go to college was my older brother. And I worked three jobs in order to help my parents him through college and and I, I thought about 
what I would do next. And, and I had three younger siblings and did not want them to have to work in order for me to go to college. So I had a friend that went to West Point. So I, I considered West Point the Air Force Academy and was fortunate uh, to get into both and chose the Army in West Point. That's fantastic. What I guess what advice would you have to uh, anybody that's uh, considering that? I mean, is there any any tips at all that you could give to somebody? But I mean, it sounds like you're going to be moving a lot. Um, and I like how you said it isn't is it isn't for everybody, but it is for some. And um, I'm sure it's a good option for people that um, are looking for that. Well, I taught engineering at West Point and. You know, so I'm, I'm a big bias for West Point. My niece was there. Uh, I graduated from there last year. I have a niece that's there this year, a nephew that's graduated from there. So I'm a big fan and supporter of West Point. I think the education is one of the best you can get in the world. And, and as I mentioned, I taught both mechanical engineering and civil engineering courses when I was there in the departments in engineering was rated among the best. In the United States, so if you're, you're if you choose to go to West Point, the education, whether it's engineering or in the liberal arts, it's one of the best educations you could ever receive. That's fantastic. Just as importantly, um, you, you know, it's one of the biggest fraternities. I mean, we don't have a fraternity, but when you are in a class that graduates about a thousand students, you become a family, and then as you leave West Point. Uh, the long gray line, as we call it, you're part of all classes of West Pointers. And and, uh, and then when you become uh, a military officer, uh, whether you're in the Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, uh, Air Force, uh, you're, you're all part of the armed forces. And, and it's a great family and it's a great culture. And I really enjoyed it. My family enjoyed it. That's amazing. That's That's great. I would love to go there, but I went to University of Utah, um, where I ended up getting my civil engineering degree. And, and well, that's a great university as well. I know, <laughs> I know. You, in fact, I work with some professors uh, from Utah now on some of the bio um, engineering work that we're doing. Oh, that's great. Um, I think one of the neat things you you did is you were heavily involved in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Could you tell us? Um, Maybe some of your most, maybe one or two most memorable experiences being involved in that? Well, there's no other organization like the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. First, uh, many people think of the Army Corps of Engineers as mostly soldiers, but it's 34,000 people in the Army Corps of Engineers, and only 700 are actually in the Army and wear the Army uniform. So it's mostly scientists and engineers and other specialties that make up this great organization, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. It's the largest public engineering organization in the world. So many in your audiences that may choose not to want to serve in uniform can still serve as an engineer, a scientist, or as part of the team of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Hmm. When you think back to history, when General George Washington and the United States Army was formed. Um, the Army was formed on 14 June 1775. And that's before we even were a country in 1776. So in 14 June 1775, uh, they formed 
the United States Army. And that's our birthday. Two days later, George Washington named the first chief of engineers. Wow. And, uh, and I was the 53rd uh, chief of engineers in that long history. And that history, um, and George Washington knew that he needed an engineer because um, the importance of the rivers and keeping the rivers uh, open to traffic so settlers can move up and down the Mississippi and the Ohio rivers. And he knew that we needed roads and bridges. And, and later we, we needed uh, under Lincoln railroads and, and we needed to map the West. And all of that was done by engineers. So the Army Corps of Engineers dates back um, well before the country's history. And, and it's done some amazing things. Uh, when you think about uh, the United States and, and Washington, D.C., the Corps of Engineers built the Washington Monument, the Library of Congress, the Capitol, um, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, and much more. We were involved in finishing the Panama Canal, so we do a lot of international work. The Corps is in 110 different countries uh, across the globe, so very focused on the United States internationally. If someone wanted to serve in the Corps of Engineers, like I said, they could serve any place all over the world. That's amazing. Is there any, and I mean, with your time there, has there been one or two events that have just been top of mind when you were when you were there? Well, I remember um, I, I arrived in, in May of 2012. I became the chief of engineers. And prior to that, I was the head of personnel for the Army. Mm -hmm. and that was a three-star position. And I thought I'd retire out of that. And I was very fortunate to be selected to, to lead the Corps of Engineers. And I remember in that first month in May, uh, President Obama had a meeting in the White House Situation Room. And he brought in some of the top leaders that would be involved in emergency response because we're getting ready to go into the hurricane season. Mm -hmm. And I was in the situation room that, that day, and President Obama said that he was concerned that we might have a nor'easter that was powerful enough that it would knock out electricity along the northeast coast and really cause wreak havoc. Wall Street and, and throughout New York City, New Jersey, and the Northeast Coast. Now, he didn't have a crystal ball, but in October of that year, Hurricane Sandy uh, hit the Northeast Coast, and it did exactly what the president was concerned of. So uh, a big part of my very initial part of my uh, engagement as the chief engineers was to help in the recovery from Superstorm Sandy and, and watching the nation pull that off and, and do it in such a professional uh, way it was one of the highlights of, of my time. And it happened real early in my my pro professional career as the chief of engineers. Just threw you right in, huh? Yeah. Right into the deep end. <laughs> and the other thing we that I was really proud of the core and of this country is that we finished uh, the major work uh, post-Katrina. So a lot of the work that we did in New Orleans uh, after the devastating Hurricane Katrina in 2005, much of that work was completed uh, on my watch, and certainly not due to me, but, but due to the great work of not only members of the Corps of Engineers, but members of engineering firms all over the United States and across the world. I used to live in Louisiana, so I was very familiar with those levees that they had there. And 
you know, everyone said that the city was sinking so much uh, per year and kind of knew that the big one was coming sometime. And the, I think the uh, efforts that I, at least I witnessed were, were amazing in getting that, um, you know, repaired and, and done. So uh, I'm sure that was uh, an amazing experience for you. Yeah, so um, one of the projects there in 2014, uh, the Inner Harbor uh, barrier that we built, uh, won the American Society of Civil Engineering uh, Construction Project of the Year in 2014. Wow. It's an amazing project. And in fact, uh, I invited uh, Minister Chen Li from China, who uh, was the Minister of the Environment and Water Related Work. And, and he invited me to China and then he, he came to the United States. He wanted to see three things. He wanted to see the recovery from Superstorm Sandy. He wanted to visit the Everglades uh, because China is, is, is really starting to work on environmental issues that they have. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to see the projects uh, that we built after Hurricane Katrina. And he looked at this Inner Harbor project and he looked at the... Um, the, the water pump uh, station, which is the largest in the world, it can empty an Olympic swimming pool in three seconds. Uh, that's how powerful it is. But he looked at this and he said, you, you know, General Bostic, uh, you know, the Chinese are you know, maybe 100 years behind in the infrastructure development of the United States. And we're working really hard to catch up. They built the Three Gorges Dam, which is yeah. the largest dams in the world. And but he looked at that inner harbor project and, and he looked at the other work and there's, you know, we, we could not have done this in seven years, like the United States has done. In seven years to the day, we had another hurricane that hit New Orleans and most people don't know about it, Hurricane Isaac, uh, because the system that we built worked. That's great. Well, my name's Isaac, so maybe, you know, I wasn't strong. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, that's a, that's a really neat experience. I think it's fun, uh, that you had those connections and, uh, that he he wanted to see those things. That's really neat. Um, I know that you are retired now, uh, from being Lieutenant General and it looks like you've been able to write a book now called winning after losing. Could you tell us a little bit about that book, why you wrote it, um, what it's about? Yes. Um, the subtitle is, um, building resilient teams. So it's winning after losing, building resilient teams. And the, the concept of resilience is something I'd like to talk about. And, and we saw it with Hurricane Katrina, we saw it with Sandy, we see it with any major disruption to a system. We're seeing it with COVID. But mm-hmm. with risk, for the engineers that are in the audience, uh, we look at a, a certain probability of something happening in in the devastation that could happen from that. And we try to defend against that risk. We try to build a levee that's high enough, strong enough. We try to build a, a, a dam that can resist a certain amount of water. But but the point is with a hurricane or, or with COVID or anything like that, something bigger is right around the corner. A bigger disruption is going to happen and you cannot, you cannot build against that. So, the idea is you have to plan for a certain amount of give in the system. Hmm. You might even say it's failure. The system's going to fail in a certain place. 
So, so you, you would plan for a certain amount of defense. You'd know that um, you were going to be disrupted and, and you're going to then give somewhere in there. And then you want to respond and recover. And then you want to adapt and you want to grow even stronger because of the lessons learned. So prepare, absorb, recover, and adapt. It's kind of the three cycles I think of with resilience. Um, and, and that that absorb piece is where you're building something that's going to resist as much as it can this disruption, but accept the fact that there's going to be some give. I think the best example of that is the Mississippi River and tributary system. It's one of the few systems that we have in the United States, and it was built after the Great Flood of 1927. Hmm. And we had over 500 people that were killed, over 700,000 refugees. Uh, millions of square miles of, of land were flooded. And the Congress said to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that you would build a system that would help to, to prevent this kind of damage uh, or limit this kind of damage in the future. So we built the Mississippi River and Tributary System, which is a combination of lakes and or, or, um, levees and locks and, and, and all sorts of uh, floodways that, that help relieve the pressure on the system. And one of the, now I'll go back to Chen Li. Chen Li was talking to me and, and when I was in China and he says, you know, General Bostic, the great flood of 1927 was a big flood. The flood of 1994 was a big flood. The flood of 2011 was a, a really big flood for the United States. And he asked me which one was the biggest. And I said, Minister Chen Li, you know, most Americans couldn't name those floods. So I'm very impressed that you've done your homework as always, and you know about those floods. And even though we lost so many people in 1927, the greatest flood by volume of water that moved down the Mississippi was in 2011. But most people don't even know about that flood because the system worked. And what happened uh, right there below St. Louis, where we're the massive amounts of water really collect and move. There's a levee there that we we blew up. Uh, we, uh, we blew up in the minds of most Americans um, that, that watched that in 2011. But what we say is we operated the floodway. We intentionally opened up that levee and we flooded an area that was six miles wide or five miles wide, 65 miles deep. And we intentionally relief the pressure. So, so that's what we did. That's what you do in resilience. You find a place where the system can relieve itself, uh, but maintain the entire system. And I think that's one of the great examples of what we've done. Hurricane uh, Katrina and the, the hurricane protection system that's there in New Orleans has similar places where there are relief valves, where if a large system comes in, a large disruption, larger than one that we can have could have prepared for, larger than one that risk would have said to build against, uh, we now have a resilient system. Mm. So going back to my book, uh, you know, winning after losing means that uh, you can win after you lose. And the book is about examples of uh, teams and people that have lost uh, in, in life, in, in, in a mission, but they bounce back. And, and, uh, building resilient teams is this concept of 
how do you build a team that can bounce back from defeat? I love that. Um, I'm sure your book is just uh, littered with examples of this. And a lot of the audience that I speak to is always preparing for their um, their exams, their FE exam, their PE exam. And many of these students are actually repeat takers. And I can see that this mindset uh, can carry through to even those taking exams. Like this, uh, I, I love the mindset. It, it can apply to something very, very large. And it also can apply to something where you're struggling even with your with your own exams, um, whether that's trying to take the FE or the PE exam to become a professional engineer. Um, how does an, I guess, just to bring it down to that kind of level, what can an engineer do? Um, uh, what can they learn from these mistakes? How do they, what advice would you give to someone that continually is repeating an exam and just doesn't um, feel like they're getting any traction? Or, or that has even made a mistake at work um, and feels like maybe they're even a, a failure because they, they made one? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, when I went to West Point, uh, I did not realize what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. I was always good in math and science, but I also liked history and some other topics. But when I arrived at West Point, I learned that I had four or five electives the entire time I was there. So everyone was an engineer. Um, in 1802, when Thomas Jefferson started West Point, he, he he realized that we needed engineers in the United States, and the first engineering university in the country was West Point. And it produced the engineers that would map the West and survey lands. They'd build the railroads and, and, and help us along the, the rivers. We needed engineers. And, and the president then believed that we needed a, a university, a military university, that can grow these engineers. So when I arrived, um, whether you liked it or not, and whether you were good at math or not, you were going to be an engineer. And you were going to study mechanical engineering. You're going to study fluids, thermo, uh, electrical engineering, dynamics, statics. Wow. Uh, you'd study the liberal arts as well. But if you came to West Point and you were looking for a liberal arts degree, we all graduated with Bachelor of Science uh, because that's what we created. Now, today, you can earn a, a, a major in, in any one or a number of different disciplines, whether it's history or economics or foreign languages. Uh, you, you can study that, so uh, those areas, but not during my day. Uh, so, so what I say to folks is, I hear a lot of youngsters say, well, engineering is hard and, and they want to change your major. Mm-hmm. That could have happened to me. You know, it could have happened to a lot of my, my friends, but we didn't have a choice. And, and what I tell the young um, students or cadets that are there now that are going through engineering, and, and it, is, it is a demanding discipline, but the hard work that you put into it is going to be well worth it uh, when you come out the other side. And and as hard as it may be on some days, and the fact that you may not have weekends, uh, you may not have much of a social life. Uh, once you get through the engineering discipline, you will be uh, very thankful that, that you did. And, and the country needs uh, young men and women that are focused on STEM. We're losing so much talent. Uh, that, that we 
we really need you know, the, the students that are in school today to stick with it, uh, regardless of how challenging it, it might be. And, and what I can say is the nation needs uh, engineers and will always need engineers. And that if you stick with it, you, you'll have great opportunities. Thank you. That, that's uh, that's really motivational, actually. I think I think engineering is a great field to be in. Um, you know, I leaned in towards math, and maybe that's why I went this route. But uh, I, we need more engineers. The country needs them, and um, I think there definitely is a reward at the end of that. It's a very fulfilling career. Uh, it is difficult to get through the schooling process, and. That's understandable, but if you can grind through it, take take, you know, get through the grit of doing that. Um, there's definitely rewards at the end of that tunnel. It's a, f a very fulfilling career. Um, I don't know of any others that you know can save more lives than what a civil engineer does. It really provides value for humanity in in, in life, um, whether that's building levees, uh, building buildings, bridges, you know, everything that we use in life usually is touched by a civil engineer that um, had had their influence on that. Um, I'm curious, Tom, so as a leader and you've been dealt a major blow, how does a leader recover from a major blow uh, quickly? Is that possible? Um, like, is it important for a leader to show up? Uh, what's, what's the steps when, when we've, received a major blow, what, what should a leader be doing? Well, I've had my share of, of uh, major disruptions uh, in my life. And and I, I think going back to the prepare stage and planning stage, and I'll talk about it from a fitness sort of perspective. I, I spent a lot of time throughout my life and, in sports and in both sports and academics, but, but sports and, and, and physical fitness. And despite that, I was flying into Iraq, uh, one of many, many visits uh, to Iraq, and I had a pain in my side and, uh, during the after I landed. And I had had a pretty strenuous workout uh, after I landed, so I thought I stretched something uh, in my side uh, tore a ligament or something. And then I, I got on an airplane flying back to Texas and, and the pain got worse. Mm -hmm. And the next day I went into the hospital um, and I found out I had a pulmonary embolism. So because I was so stationary on the plane and didn't move around a lot, I had a blood clot that formed mm -hmm. in my cast. It moved up uh, through my heart and into my lungs. And, um, and I was pretty much out of commission. And, and it didn't look like I was going to be able to de deploy with the division. And, and this is stories in my, it's one of the stories in my book because it's a story of personal resilience. And, um, but one of the things that happened was that while I was in the hospital, uh, our division was required to send a general officer to the funeral of one of our fallen warriors from uh, Iraq and his name was um, Hutchinson, Ray Joseph Hutchinson. He was in the 101st Airborne. Mm -hmm. and, and I had to do that because our division was going through a, an exercise to prepare to go to war. Um, 
I was the only one available to do it, but I was in the hospital. And I called the doctor in and I said, I'm leaving. And he goes, what are you talking about? You're leaving. And I said, well, there's a funeral in Houston. And that soldier and that family needs me more than I need to be staying in this hospital. And so I packed up. I put these stockings on that they told me to wear to keep compression on my my ankles and my, my calves. And I drank a lot of water on the way down. And I met with the family, and uh, we were successful in able in, in, in bearing, bearing Ray Joseph. And I've been in friends with this family ever since. I've been to 13 of these funerals like this uh, for fallen soldiers. And the Hutchinson family, Michael, and, uh, and, and his, the, the rest of his family um, have been great friends. Deborah, his wife. And I call them every year. Uh, I call them at least twice a year on the 7th of December when he was killed and the 9th of February, which is his birthday. And so, so my point is, even though leaders may be having a bad day, you're, you're still a leader. And you, you can't demonstrate uh, to the troops that you're having a bad day. You, you don't complain. You don't whine. You don't show weakness. Now, you may do that behind closed doors. And you may do that with your family members, but um, there's always somebody on the team, uh, and whether that's the internal team or the external team like this family, that is going to need support. And, and leaders provide that that confidence, that support, and that encouragement that allows the team to continue to move forward. Wow, that's a fantastic story. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, and that does give at least me perspective that it's important, no matter what's going on in your world, to to show up if you if you're in that leadership position. Um, that's a great story. Um, I know our time is valuable. I just maybe have one more question, and then maybe you can let us know where to find your resources. But um, I you mentioned a little bit about mentorship, and I'm curious how a mentor helped you on your journey. Uh, to where you're at, and any tips for finding a good mentor for for engineers looking for that? Well, I've had uh, mentors all throughout my my life. Um, probably the first one goes back to the initial story I told about going to West Point. Um, I only applied to West Point and the Air Force Academy because they had full scholarships, and I didn't apply anywhere else. And and even though I had uh, very good grades and I was, played football and I wrestled and played baseball and I, and I was a leader in the school, um, we had moved from Japan to California. And when I arrived and I, I put in my application for West Point, one of the things I learned is you had to have a nomination from a Congress, a member of Congress. Mm. So I wrote to the local congressman and he had already given his um, nominations out. And then I wrote to the senator, and the senator had already given their nominations out. So I couldn't get a nomination uh, to West Point. And without a nomination, you could not be appointed to West Point. So I decided that I was going to go to the local community college. And, and I was going to be a carpenter because I always liked building things. And, uh, and a retired general came to my school. And he said, uh, are, are you Tom Bostick? And I said, yes, I am. 
I understand you want to go to West Point. I said, well, I did, but not anymore. And he goes, what, what do you mean? Why, why have you changed your mind? And I explained I couldn't get an appointment. And he said, well, well, why don't you write to the president? And I said, I don't understand. I, I told you I can't get a nomination from my local congressman. I can't get one from a senator. And now you're telling me to write the president. And, and he said, well, the president has 100 nominations for children of the military. So your father is in the military. And because you're his son, you, you can get a nomination through the president. So that's what I did. I, I wrote to the White House and I obtained one of those 100 nominations. And the rest is history. But then I, instead of being the chief of engineers, I, I could have been a great carpenter and I would have loved and enjoyed life uh, as a carpenter. But because, um, because this first mentor came into my life, it made such a difference that I spent a lot of my time mentoring young people. And there's a, there's a phrase, uh, a quote that I like to use um, by a farmer. His name was Nelson Henderson. And he said the, the true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you will never sit. Hmm. That's so you plant tree, it grows, but by the time it grows to where it can cast a shadow, you're not going to be there. And I think about um, this general, his name was General George Wall, that came to my high school. Um, I graduated from West Point in 1978, and General Wall passed away in 1981. So, so he didn't see me make one promotion in the army, but mm. because he, I was the seed that he planted, many decades later, I became the chief of engineers. But I attribute a lot of that to General Wall sure. and, and my parents. But, but General Wall opened a door for me that I, I didn't even know existed. So, so to, to the young people that are out there, um, you never know when someone's going to step into your life and, and be a mentor. Yeah. And, and, and mentors you know, work both ways. And I'm working with a number of young people now. But And sometimes there's a great fit. Sometimes it doesn't. But I, my point would be to, to stay open to the opportunity of having a mentor who can help teach you uh, from the lessons that they've learned. They've become very resilient uh, in their an older age, I'd say. And because of that resilience and the lessons they've learned, they can pass on some of those lessons that may or may not be uh, of value to you, but but they would certainly be informative and educational. That's fantastic. And so when he came to your school, you really only knew him for, what, a short period of time? Short period of time. And Very he came short. to my at graduation. He came to the awards assembly and he presented me with my appointment to West Point. Wow, that's amazing. So, you know, that's great advice. You know, it goes both ways. I think it takes people to want to be a mentor and, and to do that and then for people to be accepting of that as well. So, you know, always be looking for those opportunities. So appreciate that. Well, I want to thank you for your service, all you've done, all the all this wisdom you've shared with, with our audience. Um, Tom, where can people find your book and uh, reach out to you if they wanted to? Well, if you go to um, Amazon, it's on Amazon and just look for uh, winning after losing, building resilient teams. Uh, you can type in my name. Um, 
and, and you've got my contact information. You can certainly pass Oh, yes. Yeah. You got a website, so you can just head to your website. You've got all your information there as well. So uh, we'll, we'll link all that for people if they are interested in checking out the book or learning more about you. I think you've got a very fascinating life, um, a life of leadership, and I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast with me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. All the best. Right. Thank you. Yeah. See ya. Bye.